Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Legal problems become amplified by a lack of um, access to additional services within the community. So for instance, on a domestic violence situation, in Anchorage, if somebody is, is experiencing domestic violence, I can send them to a shelter here. I can tell them to get a protective order from the local court, and I can ask the, tell them that they can call the local police to enforce it. In many of Alaska's most remote villages, there is a, not a court, there is not a domestic violence shelter, there are no police in many of our villages, and so the solutions that I'm going to talk with that person about are very different, although the problem is the same. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché, a member of the Emerging Leaders Council at the Legal Services Corporation. In this episode, we'll be discussing what it's like to provide free legal services in rural and tribal communities. To accomplish this, I'm joined by three guests. Nicole Nelson is the Executive Director of the Alaska Legal Services Corporation, the state's only statewide provider of free civil legal assistance to low-income residents. Rudy Sanchez is the executive director of DNA People's Legal Services, which provides civil legal aid to seven tribes over 50,000 square miles across Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. And finally, Rebecca Rapp is the general counsel and chief privacy offer at Ascendium Education Group and sits on three LSC boards. Before joining Ascendium, she was a county circuit court judge in Wisconsin, where she still resides. Thank you all for being with us. Rebecca, I wanted to start with you today. In recent years, LSC has put together task force uh, that address acute crises affecting American families, including headline-grabbing topics such as the opioid epidemic and natural disaster response. In the coming months, LSC will launch a new task force on rural legal aid, which begs the question, is rural legal aid in crisis? Thank you, great question. You know, I don't really think in terms of a rural access to justice crisis, there's a national access to justice crisis a justice epidemic, really. According to LSE's 2017 Justice Gap Report, over 86% of people at or near the poverty line do not receive the legal help they need. With that stated, I think this discussion and LSE's upcoming rural task force are incredibly important. Too little attention is paid to the justice gap at all. The limited discussions that do occur often occur by urban residents in urban areas and really cast or suggest that access to justice is more of a big city issue. This leaves out a huge swath of the country, 97% of the nation's landmass and 20% of the nation's population, around 50 million people. And there's no homogenous monolithic rural community. As with urban communities, rural communities include an incredibly diverse and rich tapestry of different histories, cultures, resources, topographies, and populations. It's ultimately then not about starting a new discussion, it's about broadening and enriching the discussion we're having. Ultimately, I think the same basic questions come into play everywhere. How do you connect with people who may not know they have a legal issue or may have a really bad feeling about lawyers? How do you serve people who are juggling childcare and work commitments and have transportation issues? How do you spread scarce legal aid resources and how can technology be used effectively, if at all? We cannot hope to answer these questions unless we take all communities into account. Rural communities, even with their differences, tend to have some key challenges. Um, the complete lack of attorneys in many areas, 
distance and geographic isolation, and the lack of internet or cell phone coverage. I think by giving a voice to all communities and figuring out how to address the challenges, hopefully mostly by learning from communities themselves that have figured out how to solve some of them, um, it will not just benefit rural communities, it will benefit all communities from the largest to the smallest and everywhere in between. So there's a lot in there to unpack. Nicole, I wonder from your on the ground work in Alaska, which of course has an urban center in Anchorage, but is primarily uh, a rural state and, and the country's largest state. Um, what in Rebecca's opening statement there resonates for what you're seeing in the rural communities across Alaska? Right, well, I think that Rebecca is really spot on when she talks about um, the that the justice um, gap issues or access to justice issues um, that we are talking about nationally, they're not any, they take on a different tone, I think, in more of our rural or remote areas, but they are very much part of the, the conversation where there's simply just a lack of resources um, surrounding the, the resources that are available to people who would need to uh, you know, use the justice system, the civil justice system to enforce their rights. And I think that takes on a different tone and, and the solutions to that look different in each of the communities that we, that we try to serve and try to represent. And I think some piece of the work that we do a lot, like as you mentioned, we have an urban center, which is about 350,000 people. It's an urban center where we um, struggle to meet the the justice needs of the community here, the larger community. Um, and we are also struggling to serve communities that are as small as, you know, just a couple hundred people in a very remote um, village that's off the road system. And the solutions that you're going to come to to address those, those justice challenges are different and they're very community based, but they are, you know, at their core, uh, they both relate to a lack of access and the lack of resources that are really available to meet the needs of um, individuals who are just simply trying to enforce their, their basic legal rights. Now, something that's caught up in both of those comments, um, Rudy, I wanted to ask you, because one of the challenges Rebecca had mentioned, and this lack of resources that Nicole also echoes, is that 20% uh, of people in the United States live in rural communities, yet only 2% of practicing attorneys actually practice in those areas. So there's clearly a problem in regards to just mere proximity to lawyers in rural communities across the United States. Uh, does this statistic reflect what you see in your communities in the Southwest? And if so, what can be done about it? Yeah, I, I think there really is a, a lack of, um a lack of legal resources, a lack of attorneys, a lack of uh, infrastructure. So, um, you know, over my career, I've opened offices in different locations. And uh, if I were gonna pick a place to op open an office in terms of resources, I wouldn't pick any place in my service area. Not because there isn't the need, but because there isn't uh, the sort of things you would look for when you try to set up an office. So for example, uh, my largest community is Flagstaff, Arizona, which is a city of 75,000, and it does have it does have an airport that has several um, uh, major carriers. Uh, the next largest city is Farmington, uh, New Mexico, which is less than 50,000. Then all the other communities are extremely small, so you don't have uh, you don't have a law school, you don't have 
you don't have uh, air carriers, you don't have a pool of law students that are that you can just tap into and say, hey, come do some of this work. You're going to find out it's very interesting, and then and then you can feed them in into the system. So. Uh, it, it really is, uh, I, I would echo what Nicole and what Rebecca both said, that uh, there, 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 there is a lack of resources that, that leads to um, 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 the, it makes it much harder to recruit or to hire or to maintain legal staff. Um, and then you have, uh, at least in, in my area, and it may be true in Nicole's because of the different uh, Native American tribes in her area, but you have the different licensing issues. So for DNA People's Legal Services, for example, we're, we're in three states, so we have to deal with three state bar associations. We have the different tribes that have their own bar associations, and so getting people uh, licensed to practice in those courts is also an issue, and it varies from tribe to from tribe to tribe. Some are much harder than, than others. Um, for example, the Navajo tribe, you have to take uh, a bar exam. Whether you're state licensed somewhere else, there's no, there's no opt-in or waive-in provisions. Uh, the Hopi tribe is a Tribal Law and Order Act um, tribe, and so you can waive in as long as you're state licensed. Uh, and Hickory Apache, you have, to, you have to take a bar, except they've allowed us to waive in because there are no, no Hickory licensed uh, attorneys. So uh, yes, there, there, there really is a shortage of, of uh, legal, uh, legal minds that can provide the services here. So you hit on a bunch of stuff that I was hoping we would cover today. So to maybe come at that one piece at a time, uh, Rudy and Nicole, something that your two service areas have in common is both of you lack law schools. Uh, Alaska is the only state of the union without a law school. Uh, and as you just said, Rudy, that's the same case for your, your service area. So what are you, how are you getting creative about uh, getting people interested, law graduates interested in coming to work in those communities? Rudy, I'll start with you. Well, there's a, there's a regional approach and then there's a national approach. Uh, the regional approach is there are law schools in the area. So uh, in Albuquerque, there's the University of New Mexico, which is, which has a, a, a big pool of Native American um, prospective lawyers because they have a program for that. In Arizona, uh, in, um, in Phoenix, uh, Arizona State University also has a, a Native American program. Uh, and then you have similar feeder schools in Colorado, um, and then to a lesser extent, uh, Utah. And so you advertise at those, at those schools and you try to get law students to come out to the area. And, and there really is a, um, I think there's a built-in incentive to get them to come here because of those Native American programs and also because of the, uh, the beauty of the area, the mountains, the, 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 the thin air, the, the wondrous sights that you can see. And then on the national level, what we've started to do is to, um, the last couple of years since I've been here, is participate in national uh, public interest career fairs. So we've gone to the Equal Justice Works uh, in DC the last couple of years. We've gone to um, the NYU Public Interest Career Fair, and we've advertised at other regional uh, programs such as um, um, Southern California and the Northern California public interest career fairs, and then also uh, a few of them that are one that's in Texas and, and uh, one that's in uh, another one on the East Coast. Nicole, same to you. I mean, your closest law school, American law school, is literally a country away. 
uh, in Seattle, Washington. Um, what are you doing? And then once you're able to, maybe taking a step further than Rudy's answer, once you're able to get somebody up to Alaska, how do you keep them? I think for us, as you said, the law, there isn't a law school in Alaska, so we really are um, recruiting a bunch of folks to come up here. And ALSE has a long tradition of recruiting um, folks from the lower 48, as we say, um, to come up and uh, do some time with us. And I think, um, you know, most of the people that we're looking for, or most of the people that end up coming up to work for our program, um, come to Alaska for the reasons most of us find ourselves here, which is maybe you're looking for an adventure. Um, it's, you know, an interesting opportunity. And then we hope that maybe you'll stay and end up really um, enjoying the beauty that is here and uh, the lifestyle and the community will grow on you. But I will say that, um, so we do lots of things to make sure that um, it, the experience working for Alaska Legal Services is more than just a job. It's an introduction to the community that's here and trying to um, build the network um, within the state. Um, you know, we are really lucky that um, a lot of the, you know, Alaska Legal Services for 50 years, we've been doing this work and um, that sort of coincided the existence of our organization with statehood. And so a lot of people who came through our program actually helped build a lot of the institutions that are here. We are a very young state. So we're fortunate right now. Um, one of the Supreme Court justices was a, a Alaska Legal Services attorney. We have several judges who were Alaska Legal Services attorneys. Um, and so um, really it's, it becomes more than just a uh, for us, the recruiting piece of it is integrating people into our community and understanding how we are building the infrastructure of the state collectively and together. It's more than than just um, this particular work. But I do have to say that um, in addition to recruiting lawyers from outside to come up, my thinking on this has sort of evolved over the, the years. And I really um, have been greatly influenced by our partnerships, our medical legal partnerships, specifically with the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. And so I learned from um, working in these part in our partnership with um, our medical legal uh, medical legal partnerships with the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium that they were facing a similar dilemma with respect to doctors and healthcare professionals. And um, again, they were importing. Um, people from outside to come up who are to serve local communities to provide the medical expertise that had been needed and relied on that model for a very long time, which is very similar to what we as lawyers do. Um, but that was problematic because there's lots of turnover. And I know that's something that, you know, Rudy and I share that there's lots of people who are cycling through our programs and, and that becomes problematic for lots of reasons. So our healthcare partners had started, you know, they're far ahead of us on this front about 20 years ago, thinking about how they might change that dynamic. And part of that, um, the thinking around that, um, came from figuring out how you could stratify the practice of medicine so that, you know, for instance, you don't need a doctor to give an inoculation, right? You, but you could have somebody, you could teach them that somebody from the local community that specific skill and you wouldn't, um, you could stop then importing people from outside to provide services to that community. And um, in addition to 
it be more cost effective and a resource amplifier. It also would mean that you could have culturally appropriate and community-based caregivers within that community. And so through our partnership, my eyes sort of opened and my mind opened to um, a different way of thinking about how we might expand our infrastructure and create um, different ways of providing legal assistance within those communities and empowering local communities to um, address their unmet legal needs. And so I guess my way of thinking now is more towards how am I going to use the lawyers that we have to strengthen and work with the infrastructure in, that already exists within a local community and build that infrastructure from where it starts as opposed to importing people from outside. The concept of partnerships in, in rural communities seems to be a, a theme where we're trying to leverage other institutions to be able to increase connectivity to, to legal services. And Rebecca, you're working on something similar in Wisconsin, the best I understand, uh, where you're working with technical colleges in rural and urban communities around the state to improve access uh, to legal services. So I guess my first question for you is like, why partner legal aid with technical colleges? And are there unique lessons you are learning uh, now that you've expanded into rural communities in your state? The idea for creating legal clinics at technical colleges um, was inspired in part by just seeing the success of medical legal partnerships and hearing about those. But also in part, Ascendium has, um, had started a program years ago called Emergency Dash Grant Programs. And we found that if you gave students at community colleges maybe five or $700 to get a car fixed or something like that, the chance that those students would end up staying in school for the long haul was significantly, significantly increased. So the thought, um, again, also inspired by medical partnerships was, if giving somebody a grant to get a car fixed can help them stay in a school, think about what helping somebody address a barrier to employment, like a misleading arrest record, or dealing with a housing issue that could cause them to lose their home could do in terms of helping them not only access the justice system, but also um, be able to complete a degree and sort of move on with their, their career and their life. Um, so we started um, clinics at Madison, uh, Madison and Milwaukee last year. The Madison College, it was supposed to be a soft launch and then COVID hit, um, but we had, I think, a well over 300 or 350 people. I think almost 400 people reached out within the first year for help um, on a range of topics. Um, so really that the goal this year is to start expanding out to technical colleges around the state, um, really using the technical colleges as community leaders um, and then also really leveraging the paralegal program. So they're not only great ways to get into different communities, they're great training programs and internship programs for, um, for tech colleges. So we're just starting to work on that, um, but, but I'm learning a ton the more I talk to the rural justice community about how to, and I really love what Nicole said about really looking at ways to enhance what communities already have. They have tons of strength, they have tons of trust, they're these warm, vibrant, innovative places and we're not in there to tell them how to do things or inject ourselves or do them a favor we're really there to sort of um, leverage those successes and those strengths um, to help increase access to justice one other piece i'd like to respond to that nicole said if it's okay is is thinking about how do we innovate um, the legal career to really deal with a pretty significant service delivery model issue and then a scarcity issue um, and i think we lawyers have for years really create a monopoly and we decide that lawyers need to do everything and we keep other people out in a way to, to keep business. Um, 
but I think uh, we're starting to rethink that. And I think there's some great initiatives right now um, looking at um, changing unauthorized practice of law rules to allow more people to do stuff. Thinking about what do lawyers really need to do and what can community partners do in terms of providing a shot in the medical career or helping somebody find the right form and get it filled out from a court website. Um, and then also thinking, I know there's a lot of talk now about fee sharing with non-attorneys. Um, so I think those are great moves in terms of how do we restructure the legal field. I also think all the skills that we need are not lawyer skills. So we need to think about uh, community organizing and education. We need to think about um, economics and how do you address scarcity issues. We need to talk with some business folks about how do you engage in a service delivery model. If I can get an Amazon Prime order within 10 minutes, it seems like, of ordering it, <laughs> we have to be able to figure out a way to dispense legal services. Um, and I think that in marketing, how do, you, how do you get people interested in volunteering or even to know that they have a legal issue and that it's actually a good choice to come talk to a lawyer and we're not just there to get them. So I think um, not only taking a good hard look at our own profession and how we can evolve, but also taking a look at what other fields and professions have to teach us, um, I think we would really benefit from. Just to stay on the partnership uh, conversation for just a minute longer, Rudy, um, I'm curious to what is happening in your neck of the woods. I know that the Navajo Nation was uh, one of the first adopters of the Medical Legal Partnership, so I wonder what you're seeing in your, um, in your service area. Well, we actually participate with Nicole in, in, a, in a Medical Legal Partnership, and one of our staff persons uh, uh, helps uh, set it up and, and, and run it. Um, the issue we have with that program is bringing in outside recruits to come staff it because it's on uh, the, the poverty, they're on poverty wages basically, and, and it is a short-term uh, staffing uh, entity, and so that has its own, its own issues. I did want to mention, because Nicole and Rebecca both raised some very interesting points in, in, their, in their responses. Um, one thing I'd like to mention is, is, is local resources that we do have. Uh, so I talked about uh, our efforts to recruit outsiders to come in, uh, state licensed lawyers, but we, we also have a very strong core group of tribal advocates, at least at, at DNA, and I know that that exists in other, in other areas. Uh, and um, DNA has been around for since 1967, and it's become part of the fabric of uh, of the community and the Navajo Nation is the largest tribe in the United States and it has a very robust uh, legal system. And so we've fed to them and they have fed to us. So some of our staff have gone on to be attorney generals, uh, presidents of the Navajo Nation, uh, judges uh, and on the Supreme Court and also on my staff. I have one of my staff attorneys who was a Navajo Nation Supreme Court justice. I have another one who uh, who was a district court judge. I have another one who was a uh, uh, Mescalero Apache chief judge. And so we feed back and forth and we help each other grow. Um, and, and in terms of the, the medical legal partnership, uh, we had, uh, when I got here, we were involved in it, we were helping oversee it, and we had positions in, uh, I believe, three of our offices. Uh, and, uh, but we only had one attorney that we were able to bring in. And so that is, uh, that does have some unique challenges to it. When I was preparing for this episode, I was reading this particular 2018 Harvard Law and Policy Review article on legal deserts, which is one of the biggest, it seems, from my research, data-driven dives into legal aid in rural communities. And the authors of this 
article argued that um, the so-called rural-urban divide wasn't so much of a divide as it was a Venn diagram. The authors argued that rural socioeconomic challenges, legal needs, and legal resources overlap with those of urban communities in, in many cases. Uh, so, Nicole, I was curious. You operate in a state that's mostly rural with, as you said, uh, Anchorage, uh, with about half of the state's population as an urban center. Uh, what do you think of this idea that it's not a rural-urban divide, more of a rural-urban Venn diagram? What I will say on that issue, I think that this, we see the same sort of scope of problems in rural areas as we do in urban areas, but the scale of the problems in the ability to um, address them become much more challenging the more remote you get because of the lack of infrastructure. And it's not just legal infrastructure. It is also a lack of access to transportation, um, just a lack of other additional resources. And so, um, so for instance, in Anchorage, which is our biggest office, we may see problems with respect to, we see the same problems with respect to domestic violence and lack of access to healthcare or housing issues. Um, but when we get those same problems where somebody is in a very remote village, the solutions become much different based on what's available. The problem, the legal problems become amplified by a lack of um, access to additional services within the community. So for instance, on a domestic violence situation, in Anchorage, if somebody is, is experiencing domestic violence, I can send them to a shelter here. I can tell them to get a protective order from the local court and I can ask the, tell them that they can call the local police to enforce it. In many of Alaska's most remote villages, there is a, not a court, there is not a domestic violence shelter, there are no police in many of our villages, and so the solutions that I'm going to talk with that person about are very different, although the problem is the same. And those solutions to get, so the advice that I might give somebody in Anchorage um, could really be handled yeah. with just one phone call um, and talking with them about what their legal rights are, making some referrals. But if I'm talking with somebody who's in a very remote village, I need to ask them, Okay, do you have a place to stay? Are we able to get you out of the community? Okay, what, you know, there's not a local shelter there. You don't have police. So getting a protective order is probably not going to do you a whole lot of good. What do you do in that circumstance? And so trying to troubleshoot that. And then the solution might be something like, well, do you have a local tribal court? Okay, can we get a tribal protective order? And what are the protections that are available in a community that doesn't have police officers to enforce that order and talking about different remedies that might be available there. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. I'm hoping it did. <laughs> no, that makes sense. And you're getting at some of the challenges and the divergences, uh, the, the parts that don't overlap within that Venn diagram by talking about the, the issues with solutions and resources. One of the uh, other divergences I was, I was very curious about for the sake of this call, especially with the expertise uh, that Rudy and Nicole, you both have is, um, uh, with your work with native populations. And Rudy, you talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the conversation, but I'm curious if you would go deeper into how sovereignty and self-determination rights in native communities uh, impact your work, uh, then then bring up maybe issues that we might not think about when talking about non-tribal rural areas or even urban communities. Alaska is home to 229 different tribes. Um, they are within um, all ALSC's service area. and you know, Rudy's going to be a counterpoint to this. Our tribes are much smaller than the Navajo Nation, which is the largest um, tribe. 
Um, and so they, most of, um, most of the tribes within our region um, have a different relationship to the, to the state government or federal government than uh, the tribes in the lower 48 do. And that's just related to the way that Alaska uh, came into the union and that there are no reservations. So for us, um, oftentimes our tribes are so small that they need um, legal representation themselves and lack the resources for that. And so that is one thing that Alaska Legal Services is able to do is to provide, um, again, representation to smaller tribes who lack resources on issues uh, related to sovereignty and self-determination. And that can take, um, that can take the form of enforcing tribal court orders um, and helping to get state recognition and um, and as need be federal recognition of um, state of tribal court orders. Um, we also provide representation um, to tribes in Indian Child Welfare Act cases. So that's where a tribe has a voice um, when tribal children have been removed and are under state custody. Um, and so the tribe in those circumstances can intervene in a case and, and um, state its preference as to where the the children should be placed and they also have additional rights to notice um i think it becomes challenging in not challenging i think what i it's actually one of i think the some of the strongest work we do is um understanding what uh what's going on within a community and who speaks for the government within a community i think one thing that i think um people who work outside of or who aren't used to working with indigenous communities may not understand is that the tribal government is it's like a nation it's the navajo nation right so when you're um when you're running a legal aid program within um communities that touches on tribal lands you have additional sovereigns in addition to the state and federal um you might have local community governments but you also have tribal governments and so you know in our community i have 229 different nations that, uh, you know, that we are operating within. So Rudy, I'll, I know your circumstance is different. Yeah, well, in the accident, Nicole touched on a, on a whole series of issues there. I would, I would say that um, if you focused at the three largest tribes in our service area, you would get a good, a good overview of some of the issues that we face with respect to tribal sovereignty and just tribal, um, uh, the, the fact that it's a separate nation. Uh, so the Navajo Nation, it's the largest uh, tribe in the country. It's 26,600 square miles. And it has its own government. It has its own uh, attorney general's department. It has its own court system, which includes the Supreme Court and district courts um, and its own police department. And so we, we, don't, we don't represent the Navajo Nation in, in any case, just because they have their own very robust uh, law firm. Um, then we have the Hopi tribe. The Hopi tribe is is also a large tribe, but it's it's surrounded by the Navajo Nation. Uh, it's uh, it's it has a smaller, much smaller membership. Uh, Navajo Nation is probably uh, you know up, up close to three hundred thousand. The Hopi tribe is is uh, probably about fifteen thousand, uh, but it also has its own tribal council and its own court system, and so uh, we have to be respectful of. Of, of the fact that when we cross over, when you go from the Navajo to the Hopi reservation, there's a sign that says, you're entering the exclusive jurisdiction of the Hopi, of the Hopi tribe. 
and you're subjecting yourself to the Hopi tribe. And so, um, um, as someone who grew up on the Texas-Mexican border, I understand what it is crossing into another into another government. There's no there's no uh, uh, police patrols that are going to check your documents as you cross in and out, but you are going into a a, a separate nation. Uh, and then Hickory Apache is uh, is in New Mexico. They also have their own court system. They have their own chief justice system. They have their own licensing system. So in addition to the the legal issues that that Nicole touched upon. She mentioned a few of the federal laws that apply to Native Americans generally. There are also laws that are passed by the tribes themselves. So for me, uh, when I came out here, uh, I had left a legal aid program that had a collective bargaining agreement because we were unionized. And I thought I was coming to the land of at-will employment and I thought I could be a manager and not have to have those sort of labor issues. But the Navajo Nation has the Navajo Preference and Employment Act, which applies to my organization, which which has uh, makes all my employees, uh, it takes them out of at-will employment. It also requires me to do affirmative hiring of Native Americans and, and Navajo. Um, so you have those sort of special issues that you don't have in other parts of the, of the country. Um, and then also, uh, this is a historical, uh, I learned very early on when I got here that I am a guest of the, where I work, of the Navajo Nation, of the Hopi Nation, of the Hickory Apache Nation. And I learned that because in the Navajo Times, they were running a series of articles from 50 years ago. And the first DNA executive director, um, he got in bad shape with a tribal council member, and he got excluded from the nation. And there was a big article that said DNA executive director is working off reservation in Gallup, New Mexico. And people called me and asked me what I had done. And I said, well, it wasn't me. It was 50 years ago. And uh, they, they resolved that. And we're back in good graces. But, it, but it, did, it did emphasize the point that I'm a guest. And it is a, it is a separate nation. So when you come out to the Navajo Nation, you see the, the American flag and the Navajo flag. They fly at the same level. And then you have the, the state flags that fly right below them. And the nation flies them at the same level because they are a nation. That's fascinating. And with, with the time that we have left, though, I wanted to shift from how we see things differently between rural and tribal communities and urban communities. And maybe something that, at least for right now, unites us regardless of where we live. And that's, of course, the pandemic. Uh, Rebecca, I wanted to start with you here. Um, in June, you wrote a piece saying that the COVID crisis brings opportunity to improve legal aid. I, I want to know what you meant by this, but also ask you, why did it take a once-in-a-century pandemic for this opportunity to occur? I think the um, legal profession, um, it's beautiful and it's wonderful, and I'm so proud to be a part of it, um, but we tend to be a bit... Um, conservative with a low C when thinking about change. Um, and I think that we a lot of times tie the majesty and the beauty and the respect that the legal systems deserves with um, mahogany, wood paneled courtrooms and a judge sitting up top and with a gavel and a robe and all the rest of it. Um, I think with COVID, um, people having to work from home, we've been forced pretty quickly to figure out a new way of doing things. So there's a lot of Zoom hearings. There's a lot more um, online or virtual, sometimes asynchronous mediation going on. 
And, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And I know not everything's gone perfectly, but I think we're doing okay. And we're finding that it's easier for people, particularly if you're juggling jobs and childcare and you have transportation issues, um, to be able to appear remotely. Um, and so I think there's a lot that needs to be worked out when we think about um, rural access to justice in terms of there's a lot of people who have internet or broadband issues. Um, Technology is not going to solve all the trust issues and the gaps and developing those in-person relationships and all of that. But I think it's giving us sort of a sandbox, a forced sandbox for experimenting and trying new things out and taking us out of our comfort zone in a way that maybe we as a profession would not have done but for the pandemic. And I think it's really incumbent on us um, as a profession, particularly given um, the huge access to justice issues that are being um, increased by the COVID-19 and disproportionately so on particular communities for us to take advantage of this opportunity and figure out and learn from it um, so we can um, do better in the future. Rudy, one of the things that Rebecca hit on there was um, it's an opportunity to use uh, technology uh, and certainly in the case of uh, your service area, in the case of Alaska, uh, managing far-flung uh, spaces require technology, require centralization, uh, because you can't be in all of the places um, that you cover. Uh, you are in the process of creating a centralized intake unit for DNA, People's Legal Services. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us what the goal is here and whether or not the project's value has changed or taken on new meaning on account of the pandemic. Well, the goal is to provide a, a level, uh, a level amount of services throughout our service area. Uh, you know, if you think uh, someone lives right next door to the office, they can come in, they can do an intake, they can get help whenever, whenever they want to. You want to have that same level of access for someone who lives 100 miles away from the office and doesn't have a road, uh, a paved road to get there, or a phone, or um, a means of contacting somebody. So it's it's not designed to be um, uh, a silver bullet for for spreading that services throughout our service area. It's designed to be a part of of uh, of uh, one part of a web of things that we want to use. So the centralized intake unit, the way I envision it, uh, it's going to have core staff who are going to do phone and online intake. But they're also going to organize and coordinate intake at the local level from our offices, and then also incorporate uh, an outreach intake unit. Um, we're a long ways away from putting all those pieces together, uh, but we are um, we are well on the way to, to having the phone and online uh, intake uh, component set up. Um, and Rebecca touched upon the issue of, um, uh, you know, people are resistant to change. And, and that is one, uh, with, the, uh, with the COVID pandemic, one of the things that, uh, uh, if you would say, is a silver lining, if you can say there's anything that is a bright spot about a pandemic, it's the fact that it makes all of us think about how we provide services. Um, and how we can expand on what we do and how we can do things differently so that everybody, uh, you know, if you're in the most remote island in Alaska or if you're up in, in southern Utah or if you're in, um, you know, Monument Valley, 
that you have the same basic level of services as somebody who lives in bustling downtown Window Rock. Uh, in the last couple of minutes that we have, I was hoping to end where this conversation started, was this idea that uh, we're trying to expand the conversation of what access to justice looks like in the United States, which includes rural and tribal communities, which are often forgotten in the broader discussion. And so to do that, I was hoping you would all answer the question for me. Uh, what do you think legal aid advocates can learn from rural and tribal communities? Like what's the one takeaway from your experience working in these communities that you think could just benefit anybody in this space? And Nicole, I'll start with you. Sure, um, so that, I think that's a really great question. And I think there's much we can learn from our remote um, and tribal communities. Uh, one thing I would say is that, um, I guess I'm gonna circle back to something Rebecca said, which is, you know, I think that um, we can reevaluate how much lawyering is actually necessary and think about um, how we might be able to simplify things a little bit and what other partners, what other resources we have. I think our rural communities are really, um, really great about, you know, I've heard this quote at one point that is like stress breeds innovation. And for lots of reasons in Alaska, do, for reasons related to distance and geography, for 50 years we've been trying to figure out ways that we can connect um, to one another over this vast landscape. And there's really great ways of doing that, some of which are really very low technology and some, um, you know, can move all the way up to zooming. Um, but I think that one of the, what our rural communities are really good at doing is a building community with one another and then also innovating, right? Figuring out how you are going to get the job done and make it work with what you have. Um, and I think that um, that is something that we can all like think about and use and figure out, you know, how are you going to duct tape that together? How are you going to, uh, you know, make it work, have that make it work moment with what, things that are based within um, your own community? And I think that's a moment that we're all having now in the pandemic because we are all, you know, struggling, whether we're in an urban area or a rural area, figuring out how do we make it work um, with the limitations that are, are put upon us. And I think that's something that really our, our rural communities and tribal communities excel at. Rebecca, what about you? I'm really gonna mostly just echo Nicole. Um, I think rural communities, just like urban communities, present a rich tapestry of different ecosystems that have so many strengths. So if we just look to them and lean into their strengths, I think we'll get a really um, long way and move the needle forward. And Rudy, uh, to, to end our discussion today, what, uh, can legal aid advocates generally learn from your time working in the tribal communities that you spend your time with? I think that they can learn that there really is a very strong, talented pool of people who haven't gone to law school, but who have tremendous skills, tremendous knowledge, and really can add to the, to the system and really can increase access to justice. I think that's a fantastic note to end this conversation on. With that, I would like to thank Rudy, Nicole, and Rebecca for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed, check out our show notes. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Talk Justice is produced by Kristen Reardon with support from Katherine Fanlin, Shanika Richardson, and Marta Cruz. Our fearless leader is Carl Rauscher. I'm Jason Taché. Thank you for listening. 
Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.